0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Evangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. We've got another great conversation today with Reverend Kevin Wright. Kevin is the Minister of Education at the Riverside Church in New York City, and another colleague of mine from my college days. But, before we get to the conversation, there are a few announcements I'd like to make. First, I'm very excited to announce that we've launched the Patreon for Exvangelical. Patreon is a platform that allows you, the listener, to support the podcast directly through monthly sponsorships from $1 a month and up. The funds collected there will go toward web hosting costs, equipment purchase and maintenance, and much more. More details are available at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash exvangelicalpod. Second, another great way you can support the show is through the show notes. There are extensive show notes that include links to the many of the books that we talk about during our conversation. And those are affiliate links, which means if you use those links to purchase any of the books that we discuss, we will be given a portion of those proceeds. Nothing you have to do besides click on the link, just similar to any other affiliate link you may be familiar with. But this one goes directly to us. Finally, there are two new ways to give feedback to the show through both email and voicemail. If you'd like to share a story, leave a comment, or ask a question, please email me at exvangelical at gmail.com, Or you can call me at 312-857-4196 and leave a voicemail. If you're comfortable with having your email or voicemail read on the air, please include ok to share in your message. I can't wait to hear from you all, and I encourage you to reach out. Finally, as always, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it on iTunes. If you know someone who might like the show, please tell them and share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever else you may be sharing things online. That's the best way to spread the show, and I appreciate every single time any of you do it. You can find me on Twitter at BRChastain, and the show's official feed is at Pod. You can also like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pod. Now let's get into our conversation with Reverend Wright. We talk about his journey and we also talk about LGBTQ matters and how those have affected the church and vice versa. It's another great conversation. Let's get into it. Hello, today I have with me Kevin Wright. He is the Minister of Education at the Riverside Church in the city of New York, and uh, one of my friends from college. Welcome to the show, Kevin.
1: Hey, Blake. Glad to be here. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining me. So let's uh, go ahead and get started a little bit with a little bit of background about yourself. Where are you from?
1: So I am from uh, Broadview, Illinois, which is a small suburb right, right on the border of the great Midwestern city of Chicago. And
0: is that where you spend most of your childhood in Broadview?
1: It is actually. So my my dad is uh or he, he still is a uh minister in the Wesleyan church. He serves as a chaplain at a at a Veterans Hospital. So uh we've lived actually uh I, I'm adopted. So when they adopted me, they lived in Oklahoma City. Then we moved to uh, a little town in Michigan, in western Michigan. Uh we were there for four years, and then from basically from third uh, fourth grade, uh, on they've, they've been in Broadview. They just moved out to Wheaton, Illinois a few years ago. Um, after, after my dad retired from, uh, from pastoring.
0: Oh, okay. Um, I wasn't, I'm, I grew up in the, in Naperville, like starting freshman year of high school I, and Naperville, I don't know if it has a Wesleyan church. Um, I know that's T- tends to be a smaller denomination, but i didn't i know there i think there's one small Wesleyan church in like the bucktown area of chicago and then um i c- i can't think of any what what was this what was your wesleyan church like
1: oh so it was it was a really wonderful community it was small uh when my dad uh took the took the church uh leadership position there. Uh, He was specifically brought on to help the church become more racially diverse. It was a predominantly white congregation uh, in a neighborhood that over the past 15 years before we got there, maybe 20 years, had become more uh, predominantly African-American. And he was there to help transition the church. Um, Unfortunately, uh, with every African-American family or couple that came in, uh, a white family would leave. So white flight, uh, you might call it, um, was occurring right before our very eyes. And uh, the good news is, though, is that by the end of his time there, when he first came into the church, there was one, one African-American who attended the entire church. And when he left, uh, they were running about 70, 75, and uh, over half the congregation at that point um, was, was African-American. So it was really kind of interesting to watch Watch that transition happen and see the, the way that the church changed and developed with the influx of, of new people and the cultures that came with them
0: well that's, that's really interesting, just that one to one that that was really what it really looked like to you. I mean, you must have been quite aware since you that were you involved is I know being a PK is like a special sort of thing. <laughs> I'm married to a PK. Um, but were you kind of aware of aware of those sorts of dynamics at the time when you were growing up in the church?
1: Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, you can't help but notice that. Uh, wow. You know, when you look out over the pews, it, it, it it's changing. Like the, the, the color of the people is literally changing. Um, the church did not get any any bigger. It just changed the, the, the racial makeup of it changed.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting.
1: <laughs> There's a PhD dissertation in there somewhere, trust me.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh for you, were you involved in in your family's church? Um did you think of it as your family's church?
1: Oh my goodness, yes. Uh so I was I was heavily heavily involved. Uh part of that was just because as people would leave, uh, it became necessary for for uh, our family to step in and fill in. So my sister, uh, one of them was really uh, gifted musically. Uh, and I, I tried my hand at, at helping out. So uh, helping out with some of the music, helping out with the children's ministries, uh, helping out with with really whatever, whatever I could. Actually, at one point, uh, I was uh, helping to clean the church. It became my after-school job. So I was like our church janitor for like two or three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was it was great. I to this day I can I can clean a, I can clean the church building pretty well if you need me to. <laughs>
0: um so did you go to public school while you were there or what what was your school like?
1: Yeah, so I went one year to a uh to the public school and then in 5th grade uh the year after we moved to that area my mom got a job at a private Christian school, a Christian reform school, uh, out in Elmhurst, Illinois. And so, they had a requirement that if your one of your parents worked there, that your kids had to go there. And uh, as a result, they offered a, a extremely generous and steep discount for um, for children of, of faculty members to to attend. So, we transferred there, and I. I've finished up elementary school, middle school, and, and high school. It was really, uh, and still is to this day, uh, a fantastic uh, school. They do, no one does education like the Reformed. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> Speaking
0: as two Armenians, uh, that's definitely a compliment.
1: <laughs> I They're like the Jesuits of Protestants. They just, they get education, they know how to do it well. And uh, it's, it's just something that they, they, they're very, very good at. And uh, the school itself—it was interesting because it was—it was really my uh, my first uh, interaction with with reformed schooling. So they had this very deep theological bent to it. They were very evangelical, uh, but not necessarily in all of the ways that I had become become accustomed to growing up uh, in the Wesleyan Church. Um, but they were also very intellectual. It was very clear that they were they were deep thinkers. We had to take a class. In high school called Reformed Perspectives, that was basically um, John Calvin for high schoolers and uh, it <laughs> was it was extremely intellectually rigorous i mean we were we were going through uh, the theological framework of of calvinism and while i didn 't uh, agree and still don 't agree with every tenet, uh, my goodness is it well thought through i mean it 's nothing if not uh, logical and extremely well articulated.
0: Mm-hmm. So after that, after after high school, um, you then went to a Christian college in the Midwest. That's where we met. Um, Yeah. We took, I know we took two years of Greek together. Um, I don't know whether um, we had much, much more overlap. I was a biblet major and then ended up graduating with a um, with a minor in it, and then getting history and writing majors instead. Um, That was smart.
1: Uh, that's but, why you have it, that's why you have a job right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um but yeah we we did take uh, Greek classes together, and then um we we i think we at the time we definitely ran in different circles um but what was your college experience like
1: i I actually uh look at college as kind of this this turning point, this pivotal moment so i i'd grown up in in a pastor's home. I'd gone to, uh, to church camps and to vacation Bible schools, and I knew, oh my goodness, every, every praise and worship song Chris Tomlin ever wrote. Um, <laughs> I, I think I had committed my life to Christ 20 times by that point. Um, I, had, I, just, I had the whole kind of traditional classical evangelical thing down. Um, and so I went to the school fully expecting to do that. So when I was in, uh, between my soft, I'm sorry, between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, I'd gone to a Christian summer camp and felt a very strong conviction that, that God wanted me to go, uh, into the ministry. And, uh, regardless of where, where, or how my theological, Framework has, has changed or developed over the years. I look at that point as very seminal, very important. And so I went to this Christian college thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm going to be this, this pastor. And, and if you would have asked me, what kind of pastor are you going to be, I would have given you a, a description uh, of what was familiar to me at that time. Uh, or what I envisioned to be a successful evangelical church, which ironically and interestingly enough was not the type of church that my dad was in, right? Because he was in a, a church that was was fairly small, that had uh, that was not wealthy because it was in a a, a poor neighborhood. Uh, but we had you know this dream of of a Willow Creek, right? We had Willow Creek right in the Chicagoland area, so I knew what what these very successful evangelical churches looked like, and I thought to myself, my gosh. I can do that, you know, by George, I can do that. Um, I was an idiot like <laughs> that's that's not not something that anyone should 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 ever think. Um, but that was kind of what I was exposed to, and the nature of what was articulated as success uh, in college in my degree program, which was specifically related to ministry, um success looked like these large largely white as well, uh, mega churches.
0: So getting 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 back a little bit to that, um to where you started there and with talking about your you your feeling of being convicted and called at a at a summer camp. Is that what led you to Christian college or had you already decided kind of earlier than that that you were probably going to go to a Christian college?
1: Well my sister went there. Um it was the only college I applied to. I think in my family it was it was just assumed like that's that's where that's where good Christians in our particular denomination go mm-hmm. and I'd visited the school before uh, simply because my sister had gone there as familiar with it uh, I had a cousin uh, who had who was entering the same year that I was and two cousins before that cousin who had attended the school so um, it was really kind of a no-brainer I also had uh there were some uh, not significant but uh, scholarships that were were available because of of my dad's status as a as a minister mm-hmm. uh, and such. Yeah, that
0: that generational pull c- between either family members or parents or anything like that. I think that can be especially strong for Christian colleges. Um and then it, when you kind of double down on a denominational affiliation that makes it, makes that pull even stronger. That's why I wanted to, to, to go back to that a little bit. So yeah.
1: And I, oh, can I say something else sure. too? So in, in the denomination, uh, and the denomination where I, I started out, um, and that my dad, um, ministers in, there's no requirement for seminary to be an ordained minister. So what you can do is just go to one of the denominational colleges and complete a, a degree program there that's certified by the denomination and, and they'll put you put you in charge of a church. Mm. So for me that was that was kind of well I need to do this. This is this is what people do. This is how you get there. Uh in retrospect, there is is no way uh in heaven or hell that a twenty one year old college graduate should be put <laughs> in charge of a church. That, that, is, that is ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. In fact, I remember there was, in college, uh, and this affected actually one of the reasons why I decided to go on to seminary. I had a professor who said, uh, the reason you want to go to seminary, if anything at all, is that it keeps you away from the church for at least three years, so you can't do any major damage to yourself or to other people. <laughs> and that was that was mind blowing. That was also one of the most helpful things I learned in college. Right? It was so wise.
0: That's very practical advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was. Other things that were said at that college were not helpful, nor practical, nor feasible. That was something that I think actually, uh, in many ways contributed to to where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. So you're
0: you're at Christian college, you're you're going through the motions, you're you're learning all the things you need to learn in order to become a pastor, you have these ideas of what you thought it was going to be like in before, before college before you come there. Did they start to change during college? Or was it kind of, um, kind of afterwards upon later reflection, once you're out out of college? When did things start to kind of change for you?
1: Yeah, so you had spoken earlier about uh, the Greek classes that we took together. And uh, I remember, I believe it was the first Greek class that I took. Um, we had to translate for, for the final. We had to translate large sections. I, or maybe it was the whole book of the book of First John. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I had ever read that book before uh, because it, it 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 was not it was just I don't know, it was just kind of one of those books in the back of the Bible, you're like, well I'll get there if I if I need to. But I have the book of Romans and that's where the Romans wrote is so I can lead someone to salvation, so that's all I need. Um and I'm reading this book, First John. And and you know, when you're reading something in in, a, in in the original Greek, uh you have to read it so slowly, especially when you're translating it for a grade. And I came across this passage, um, first John three seventeen. Uh, But if anyone has material possessions or material goods and sees a brother or sister in need, uh, but doesn't have any any pity or no concern for them, it says, how can the love of God be in that person? And that cut me to the core. I remember sitting at my desk. It was evening, and my roommate had already gone to bed, and I had my desk lamp on. And I remember coming across that passage and saying, wait, is this really in the Bible? Like what? It was was so divorced, so divorced from what I considered Christianity to be about at that point, right? So the litmus test for the love of God being in a person is not whether they've said a prayer, it's not whether they, they do their devotions, it's not whether they don't look at pornography or whether they've thrown away all their CDs with swear words. The test is if you have something in need and someone doesn't and you don't give a crap about their life you fail the test. What? That that's radical. That that was so contrary to anything that I had ever encountered uh in the articulation, articulation of the gospel I had heard up to that point and certainly beyond anything that had been dispensed in the mandatory three times a week chapels that I, I went to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You went to those.
1: <laughs> well I, 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 I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I, was... right here, I I found a, a workaround. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I went, I went to them and then didn't go to them and ended up listening to a lot of tapes.
1: <laughs> I had a, but, so I had a, I had a class in the building where, where it was during one of the chapels. So I would go in, scan in, go to my class. And then at the end, run in the chapel, go out the other door, scan out. So I that's never had brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell them. because They'll <laughs> <Basil laughs> revoke my degree or something. <laughs>
0: Uh, I I think um Greek Greek for me was definitely in both positive and negative ways, um very challenging for me as well. Um, I I know that I had like a very personally I had a very significant crisis of faith sophomore year. I think it was a lot of things wrapped up, um and it was just mainlining a lot of things while I was there. And I initially came in thinking I wanted to be a pastor, and then left that sort of vision for my life um, during that sophomore year, essentially. Um, But it was still the experiences within those Greek courses that was uh, really great. I mean, it was difficult at times because it very directly attacks an idea of inerrancy that is very prevalent amongst evangelical circles. Like, it's very hard to maintain... The idea of inerrancy, when you're looking at it from that perspective, and learning about the the historical text, but at the same time, for me, it was um, in Greek class looking at the Philippian hymn and going through that and seeing how how you know God gives up all of His power. He just he abdicates everything in order to have some semblance of a relationship with us, and that was mind blowing to me because because it always seemed like the idea was is that you were trying to be more and more perfect. You were trying to be more and more like God, and really, he was trying to become approachable to me, and I was trying to become approachable to him, and that was kind of mind-blowing. Um, but it was Greek that really opened those doors for me. have this, you have this moment in first John, is that, so you have this pivotal moment while you're looking at this, how does that change for, how does that change your path? How does it change your perspective?
1: Sure. So what that did was, uh, it, it, it actually affected me fairly deeply. And I began having conversations with, with one of my friends who was also discerning a call to ministry and, and, pursuing an educational track along those lines, and we decided that we were going to start giving back right um, and so we tried to, uh, to do that so that was that was that was encouraging in one way because it 's like well we 're reading this in scripture now we 're trying to fulfill it um, on another hand, it also opened my eyes to the fact that i 'm having this existence on this disneyland like campus that has a movie theater and a swimming pool and all these recreational facilities to keep us there to keep us on campus and four blocks away there are these kids living in houses that uh, don't have proper insulation so in the winter time it's extremely cold or they're living in environments in which their parents simply are not able for whatever reason to take care of them and so they're fending for themselves and doing things that we would not ask of kids their age simply because we would say, well, your parents are there to do that for you. And so it became this, this, this disconnect, right. Of on one hand, I'm reading the gospel story. I'm reading, I'm reading the gospel and I'm training to do the gospel or perform the gospel to lead other people in performing the gospel in, in church through, through hopefully a role as a pastor, uh, and yet I'm not really seeing this campus, this community, other people in my department care about that, right? We're more interested in learning how to design really cool PowerPoint presentations or learning how to tell really funny stories so that people will laugh and, and think that we're cool or um, how, to, how, to, how to talk a particular way so that we'll appear relevant and, and, and trendy. Um, that, will, that will mess with your head. If you let it, that will mess with your head. and, and uh, I realized from that, um, I was not ready to go into uh, into leadership at that point of a church, like and, and, which is crazy because I did well like i I'm not gonna lie. I did well in 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 the religion division um i I received a lot of awards. it got uh, I was the outstanding preacher for for one of the years. Um, which says more about the lack of good preaching than it did about my abilities. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think if people would say, well, if any person's ready to go into the ministry, it's this kid right here. And, um, through conversations with actually a, a professor who's no longer at the school, um, I realized I am, I am not ready to, to, to take a church, even though other people we're applying for jobs and getting interviews and things like that. Um, I decided to go a different path and what was that path? So I applied to seminary and I applied to uh, to three seminaries. One was a, a seminary that my father actually had attended for a time when he was uh, training for the ministry, and one was a school that some uh, alumni of of the school had had attended that I looked up to and that I thought were really smart, really bright. And one school, uh, which is the one I ended up going to, was a school that this professor that I spoke of earlier um, had, had gone to and encouraged me to go there. Uh, I didn't want to, but I, I applied. I got in. I, I think I applied extremely late, too, and um, got a, a, a good scholarship there. So I ended up going to uh, Duke Divinity School uh, in Durham, North Carolina.
0: And what was your time like there?
1: Duke, Duke was a life-changing place. Uh, Duke, Duke completely, uh, and I'll use this language very carefully, but 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 sincerely, Duke was a place that I believe God used to 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 shift the trajectory of where I was going and to open up some doors and close others. I, I don't think I would be in the ministry today if not for Duke, uh, and and I'll say that very uh, very truthfully. I would not be. In ministry, serving as a minister today without Duke Divinity School,
0: and what was it? Um, can you um, kind of unpack that a little bit? what What about your what about your time there? What about your exposure to new ideas, or or uh, did you, did you see it as an alternative to the sort of evangelical teaching that you received before, or however else you want to frame it, really?
1: Yeah, so. Uh, first, what what Duke did is it, uh, it it's United Methodist school, and they were gracious in their acceptance of me as a, as a non-United Methodist. Although someone coming from a tradition that that came off of Methodism, they uh, they provided me with wonderful opportunities um, through some field education experiences, uh, which is like the like a they're like little internships, right, that we do during the summer and during the school year. Um, they put me in congregations, uh, working with ministers who were extremely intelligent, incredibly bright, and tremendous leaders uh, on a level that I had not seen before. Um, they they were talking about John Wesley and Carl Bart and Carl Rahner, and they were also leading these really. Kind of, kind of amazing congregation. Some of them are quite large too, um, you know. And I've never heard—I'd never heard a megachurch pastor. Never heard any of the the big shot pastors that, that came to chapel uh, and, and during college ever ever quote a theologian uh, that that I think uh, would we would consider to be seminal thinkers. Um, they would usually use like a movie quote or like an illustration <laughs> from like Hollywood. But, you know, when's the last time anyone in chapel was ever like, you know, St. Nations of Loyalist said. <laughs>
0: you're like... Yeah. So since you brought that up, let's uh, I, I want to kind of go down that rabbit hole for a second. What do you uh, even even being I wasn't a ministry major or religion and philosophy major. I was like a biblet major, but took some other courses in the religion department um, that weren't affiliated with the biblical literature. Uh, but. Even that being said, there was not really any exposure to modern theologians within the context of that those collegiate courses. There was no mention of Karl Barth, Paul Tillich, Hauerwas, Wass, Moltmann, however, whoever you want to mention, they weren't present there. Um, but it does seem to me that those sorts of th- those sorts of writers and thinkers are taught at a seminary level at a number of seminaries. Even those that might be considered more evangelical or fundamentalist um, but why do you th- why do you think it is that uh, evangelicalism doesn't really want to dialogue with with those voices
1: there, there's a skepticism uh, because a lot of these voices don't uh adhere to the 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 beliefs that that modern day evangelical evangelicalism uh, does, or, or let me put it this way, um, what we typically see as evangelicals today, which, which some of your other guests have argued and I would agree with them, um, is really a fundamentalism, uh, was developed in response to a lot of these voices uh, who were deemed not uh, Christian enough or not, not um, by the book enough uh, and, and, and abrogation away from the true gospel Of Jesus Christ. So I remember in church history, uh, one of the church history classes I took, um, the professor was talking about the rise of what's described as liberal or progressive Christianity in the in the 19th and in the the 20th centuries, and there was almost this sense of like, even though you have these incredible thinkers um, who are writing really wonderful things, when you begin reading them. Uh, and at the very least, you still should know because it's part of a theological trajectory that we find ourselves in today. It was like, and then there, you know, there's John Wesley. He's, he's in the 1700s. Uh, there's Francis Asbury, there's Phoebe Palmer, and then like a whole bunch of other people. Right. And then it's like, and now today it's like, what? You just, you just skipped a (laughs) hundred years. (laughs) And and at the time I'm like, well, I'll never, I'll never need to know about these people. And here I am uh working at the riverside church which is you know one of the the birthplaces of 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 progressive christianity with harry emerson bosdick so uh i really wish that they would have spent more time on that because it would have been nice now um, <laughs> that being said when when you don't talk about that right here here's the problem when evangelicals don't talk about that uh, and miss that that section of history they miss they, they, you 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 end up leaving out people like Martin Luther King Jr. Like we we think of Martin Luther King Jr. as as well civil rights yeah and, you know you can't you can't not express admiration for him right there's even even if you don't like his theology you can't you can't say well Martin Luther King Jr. was a bad guy no people would they would be in an uproar but you have to start to read King closely because he's actually deeply theological and. Yet, we we didn't, we didn't read any of them, right? We, we, we didn't read any of them. Reinhold Niebuhr, for instance. We didn't read any of Niebuhr. Regardless of whether you disagree with him, you need to understand Reinhold Niebuhr because the current president of the United States, his entire foreign policy has been based on Reinhold Niebuhr. He's, uh, Barack Obama is a Niebuhrian. Clear. Clear as day. Um, you really can't interact with Bonhoeffer. You really can't interact with Karl Barth and these are theologians that you need to at least be conversant with because whether or not you know it they're affecting your local situation and frankly they're providing you with resources and tools that help you I think be be a Christian in a modern world.
0: Absolutely. I agree. I I read um, Moral Man and Immoral Society in grad school and it like flipped my lid. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it it was a it, it's a difficult read but it's it like pays off tenfold. It is a marvelous book and I would have loved to have read that in college when that was all I was doing. <laughs> I, I did I did grad school part time while working full time reading this on the on the train and stuff. <laughs> but but yeah, I I I completely agree cuz the more I learn about modern theologians it is definitely it's more conversant with modern or postmodern realities. It's, it's just true when you, when you're skipping a hundred years of of progress or dialogue or whatever you want to call it, uh, that that's going to put you at a disadvantage for sure.
1: Um, You know, and it also, it it robs you of, um, of Orthodox, of Catholic theologians as well. So uh, I think I I actually, they had one class on, uh, Saint Augustine that I took, and that was helpful because it actually helped me to really, uh, really fall in love with with the Confessions, um, which I still go back to as as as, as a source of, of of thought and reflection. Um, but we never talked about Thomas Merton. We never talked about Dorothy Day. Uh, we never talked about uh, these individuals that wait a minute, they're, they're, they're talking about Jesus in a very profound and a very loving way. And they're talking about Jesus in a way that compels them out into the world. And they're having mystical experiences. And wait, how is that dissimilar than us, you know, in chapel raising our hands, getting moved by the Spirit? Um, so it, it was, I think it's to our disadvantage here. It, it really is. And hopefully it's changed. I haven't looked at a course catalog uh, in probably five years or six years from, from where we graduated from. Um, and I'm sure things have changed since then, but at least at the time that I went there uh, it was fairly limited
0: hmm so you're you're reading all of, you're reading all of these things, you're experiencing all of these things at the seminary level now um do you start to feel like you're pulling away from evangelicalism this this fashion of faith that you were brought up in that? That you, be, that you explored very earnestly in college? Do you feel like you're drifting away? Do you kind of have a more pivotal moment like you did with First John? Or how did... I mean, do you even feel like you have pulled away? The only I'm framing it that way because of the very nature of this podcast. It's called sure. Exvangelical. So um, I'm not going to force that narrative on you, um, but the way we're kind of talking right now, it does pure that you have a different perspective than you started out with. So how did you kind of, and I don't think that perspectives stay the same for very long, but how did, because I think that if you, because I think that they they should be growing and changing as you learn more and as you experience more in your life. Um, But that's just me grandstanding for a minute. Sorry. Let me get back to (laughs) your podcast. (laughs) Let me get back to the question. Do you feel, uh, how do you feel like that, Changed over time? How do you feel like your perspective changed over time?
1: Sure. Um, so, I one time uh, went to a. Uh, this is kind of a, a pivotal moment for me. Uh, one of my field education experiences was I spent a year working at a home for the developmentally disabled uh, in North Carolina. It was a state run institution, and I was placed under the supervision and care and directorship of this. Uh, exceptionally wise chaplain, who was a graduate of the same uh, institution, Duke Divinity School, as I was trying to be a graduate of. And the way that he would work with the the individuals there was incredible. Watching the, the level of care, uh, watching the patience, watching the deep, deep, deep love That he had for people who who suffered all types of of relatively minor to incredibly severe developmental disabilities and he let me be a part of it and so you know i would help adults use the restroom and and have to call nurses over to say so and so needs needs a diaper change and and sit with kids who who had bruises over their bodies because they were banging their heads up against the wall because they were so angry and they couldn't articulate why they were just, that was, it was a part of, of, of what they were facing. And around the same time, one of my colleagues from, from college had gone a little bit different path. He had decided to go do an internship at this incredibly prestigious mega church that it was like, wow, if you can get in here you're going to be someone someday. And he had, he told me a story about how he's at this church and he got contacted by some members of the church, a woman who she and her friends had uh, relatively manageable forms of developmental disability, but still significant enough that they, they, they couldn't really drive themselves around. Right. And they wanted to keep coming to church but it was becoming increasingly difficult so they called him uh or the call was fielded to him as an intern and it was basically can the church find a way for us to get to worship right and this is this is this is a a megachurch these folks have money and my friend told me that he went to uh, the executive minister told them the issue and the executive minister goes into the church database and looks up their giving and sees what it is and says, basically, no, it's not worth it. And here I am, right? We're changing diapers. We're, we're walking at a snail's pace, pushing wheelchairs. Cause if we go too fast, the person gets extremely anxious. The individual gets extremely anxious. We're, we're putting puppets on our hands and using them during worship because that's a way that many of the individuals in our community can understand um, the gospel. And granted, I actually really like that part. Um, but we're, we're, we're doing all these things, and yet I, I'm, I'm seeing in the evangelical world people saying that, that the same types of people are not worth it. And uh, actually, he and I both were like, "We're done. Like, <laughs> if that, if that's the best that if that's what evangelicalism creates, we're done." Now, to be fair, I'm sure that happens in, in other churches all the time. But but that was it. It was it was just a very distinctive. Um, it was a sense that they have not thought through this issue theologically, and that's what seminary does, right? So yes, you're getting more knowledge. You're getting you're getting smarter, whatever that means. But it's also teaching you how to think. It's also forming you how to think theologically. I've I've worked um, in higher ed uh, as a chaplain at a law school and a medical school, and at, at actually a really prestigious law school, medical school. And it was so interesting when I when I worked there doing chaplaincy work, campus ministry work, because I got to see how those programs ran um, after having gone through a professional degree program myself, and I realized that. Um, at least for law school, um, so much of what they're doing uh, is not uh, just rote memorization, because you can always go look up case law, right? Um, It's teaching you how to think. It's saying, let's teach you how to think critically. Let's teach you how to think specifically about these issues in a very particular way so that you can come to conclusions that fit these these standards of, of what we consider to be excellence. And that's what a really good seminary program did, and that's what Duke Divinity School did to me. And particularly, um, they they allowed me to approach issues that were considered so taboo from the environment that I had come from, um, particularly around race, but especially around the issue of homosexuality.
0: So entering into that subject a little bit, how did um, how did Duke Divinity allow you to explore those questions about homosexuality and sexuality in general?
1: Sure. Now, so to be fair, like there there were professors at the school who were, you know, who would fit a more classically evangelical line, what you see. So, you know, homosexuality is, is contrary to God's will. It goes against nature. But there were professors who said, no, this is This is a part of of evolution. This is something that we believe God can have something to do with. And I took a class, uh, a New Testament ethics class. It was actually probably one of the best classes I ever took in seminary. And it was taught by Richard Hayes, who um, is is one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. Um, And a New Testament ethicist, Alan Verhey, who um, is deceased now but uh, was one of the foremost ethicists um, in, 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 in the world, the Christian ethicists. And uh, at the time, uh, Richard Hayes was reading from his book, Moral Vision of the New Testament, and he was coming down on the side of this is this is something that that Christians ultimately cannot bless. And I remember Dr. Verhey um, saying, no, no. Uh, God desires us to live in community, and for some people, um, they might be ordered so that this is the type of community that they would seek. And that is, that is not doing justice to the beauty and the architecture of his argument, but I'm trying to boil down an entire semester's worth of information into <laughs> three seconds, so this podcast doesn't last until, you know, King of so, uh But it was like, huh. And then I took a, a sexual ethics class. Um, and. The professor there had us read all of these beautiful, beautiful texts, including a novel called Saint Maybe by Ann Tyler, which to this day is seared into my soul as one of the most impactful books I've ever read, Um, and begin challenging the view of of masculinity, which, which right, cuts to the core of some of the, the evangelicals. A beef with homosexuality. That it, it it disrupts this idea of masculinity. Um ultimately, however, I think that's a view of masculinity that evangelicals hold that is neither biblical nor theologically appropriate. But still, going through this class, uh I'm I'm seeing challenges, chipping away at 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 that and then also getting a, an understanding of of what marriage is, right? We're reading uh Luther's treatises on marriage. We're reading some outstanding um, theologians who are doing critical work on the issue of, of same-sex relations, and these aren't idiots, right? These are these are these are people who have degrees from extremely extremely prestigious universities, and it just it was it was it was a watershed moment. Thinking, what if, at least in regards to this particular issue, everything that I've been taught, or at least a significant majority of it, uh, is wrong. What if it's wrong?
0: And that's a, that's a very big question. (laughs) Um, let's, um, let's maybe try to, um, let's, let's try to dial in to one part of that, which might, which might be tape playing devil's advocate or an evangelicals advocate. Let's say that.
1: (laughs) I mean, Um, sometimes I'm an evangelicals advocate. Go for it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Uh, you have certain texts, you have Leviticus and you have Romans and you have maybe one or two others, but I think Levit- there's
1: six total. <clears throat>
0: yeah. So you've got Leviticus 17, you've got Romans, um, 1, or something like that.
1: You got Romans. Yeah.
0: Um, and I don't know what the other ones are. There might be one in, uh, another one of Paul's letters. Um, but I don't, I don't know the other ones. Sorry.
1: No, that's you're you're obviously not a good evangelical.
0: I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I'll forget you. <laughs> um. So you have these biblical texts that ad- that seem to address at least the at least the acts themselves.
1: You got Corinthians, and you have Timothy. They'll pull up the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah story. You have two in Leviticus. Okay. All right. So and those... then of course the Romans one, which you mentioned.
0: Yeah. So you have these these texts, which are um one of our professors would have called them naughty verses <laughs> they're the verses that they're the verses that don't fit into the paradigm of a certain subset of believers um how how did how do these professors how do you um how do you address those particular um those particular passages in in light of the overall christian message
1: yeah so um I'm going to try to make this there, there, there are two ways I go about this, and, and I'm going to try not to get overly um, scholarly. I'm not a fan of doing theology by saying uh, basically playing a game of, of, of war like you do with cards where you each draw a card and the highest one wins. Um, that that's that type of proof texting is is really it's dangerous number one, uh, because if you do that you could justify slavery and you could justify the oppression of women. Uh, And I don't think any of us want to do that. Hopefully none of us want to do that. So doing theology that way is incredibly dangerous and and deadly. And if you don't think it's deadly, uh, why in the world did we have the subjugation of African-Americans from uh, well before the birth of this country? Uh, up to you know, just you know, 160 years ago, like what? That was that was done because of scripture. That was done because of God fearing, supposedly God fearing men and women said. When we read the Bible, we see that this is is a way to, um, in accordance with what we believe. So so we're not gonna we're not gonna read scripture that way. I'm not gonna read scripture that way. The way I am gonna read scripture though, is is looking at it. Um, through the lens that I think we are supposed to read it, and that is through the lens of Jesus. Um, that the, the, the theology, the, the kingdom vision of Jesus, or the kingdom vision of Jesus, uh, trumps everything. And, and really, what's fascinating to me is that uh, when you begin to look at the, the construction of, of the canon— what we know as the canon today of scripture, Um, Paul's writings are written extremely uh, relatively early compared to the gospels, right? So um, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are written later. Um, And, and Paul's writing comes first, which is odd because right, when we, when we open up the new Testament, we, we see uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we think, well, these books must've been written first. Not true. Uh, Jesus, also we know, was extremely versed in, uh, in the Old Testament. He's a rabbi. So when, when the gospel writers are putting their, their text together about Jesus, when they're compiling their stories, they are aware that Jesus, being a rabbi, knew, knew the Old Testament, what we could call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The gospel writers also, presumably, would have some knowledge of Christian teaching uh, through, through Paul's letters you know, that were circulating around. And yet, Jesus never talks about homosexuality ever. He talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about money. There are a lot of stories about Jesus honoring, lifting up the position of women, uh, even though Paul writes some, some disparaging things about them. Um, in his in his letters, uh, and at the end of the day, I'm going to go with Jesus on this. I'm going I'm going to assume that the things that were really really important about Jesus got in there, and the things that that Jesus just didn't really see as a priority, um, didn't. That that's really controversial. I get that. That's really controversial. Um, but guess what? Whenever you focus on Jesus, it gets really controversial. Like, I mean. He was killed because he was con- he was executed by the state because he was so controversial. That's, <laughs> that's, that's our gospel story. We serve a guy who was so controversial. The state's like, it's better if you're dead because otherwise you're going to cause us a lot of problems.
0: That's <laughs> very true. That doesn't get highlighted very often, though.
1: <laughs> no, no, but that's 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 how I I I look at this. That's how I look at this theology. But but even I mean you can we can we can argue all day long about the the context of each text, right That's always fun right so well, you know historically this word means this and that word means that and that here's the problem: we actually don't know what they were thinking when they wrote these 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 texts we We do not have the ability to sit in their minds and know exactly what they're thinking and and these these languages that they were written in are ancient languages. There, there are, are thousands of years of distance between us and those languages. So for us to say we know exactly what every single word – no. We we have – I mean, come on. We have a hard enough time sometimes understanding uh, what the heck uh, Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales means at certain points. And it's the same language, for goodness sake. Uh, a different A different variation of English, but it's English. And yet – we think that we have this mastery over, over biblical Hebrew and, and, and Koine Greek. No one speaks Koine Greek anymore, by the way. Um, and, and especially we think we have a mastery over, over language uh, as it presents itself in Scripture, for which there are words that appear in no one else in Greek. Paul's notorious for making up words. He does it all the time. Um, the book of Acts has words that are found nowhere else um, in, in the entire scripture. So we we do our best to piece this together, and and I just think to myself, there has to be room for some error in there because I just don't think that even on our best days we're that good. Yes, the Holy Spirit might help us understand it, but but it also probably should have helped people understand that no, it's not okay to enslave black people or African Americans or Africans um, and treat them as property and yet there were still a whole heck of a lot of southerners who went to church every single sunday and then went home and beat their slaves.
0: Yeah, sorry, that's a bit. <laughs> I'm just I'm processing
1: that, honestly. It is. I'm It's awful. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy. And 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 here's here's the wonderful thing, right? Here's 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 what Duke taught me. Duke taught me to always look for the fruits of the spirit. Right? That's 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 one I think that's the best thing that that comes out of Paul's writings is the fruit of the, and there's like an evangelical song that talks about this you know love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control and the wonderful thing is that when you look at the story of the church um in the book of acts uh which is is the 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 story of really you know this little baby church these followers of Jesus starting to to form this community of, 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 of Christ. Um, when you look in the book of Acts chapter 15, right? this is a story. Things have come to a head because uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are out there ministering to Gentiles. More and more Gentiles are coming uh, into the church, and they, they're, they're a little bit different, right? They're, they're, they do things a little bit differently. Um, they're not circumcised. They, they eat different types of food. And it all comes to a head uh, at the uh, Council of Jerusalem, and look how the thir- look how the church does theology there. If you read that account very carefully, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna to to read it for you now. But but look what happened. Look at how they do their theology. They actually they don't start off by saying, "Hey, everyone, go grab the Torah, let's unroll it, and try to find every single passage that deals with Gentiles." and figure out why these people are are degenerates. No, they start off by hearing stories of what's happening. So can you imagine, they're telling stories about Gentiles who are filled with the Holy Spirit, or Gentiles who are donating money to the poor, or Gentiles who are helping out the widows and the orphans, or Gentiles who are, 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 are speaking in tongues. And then they start reading the prophets. Then they start, re- through, through, through the fruit, the obvious fruit that is in front of them, then they start reading the prophets. And, and they come to this basic conclusion of, wow, we must have got this wrong. We, 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 must, we, must, we must have got this wrong. That, that's how that council unfolds. That's the first major instance of the Christian community having to deal with a fairly significant theological issue. And the way that they do that is not through proof texting. That's a very modern way of going about it. Um, they do it by listening to the lived experiences of people and saying we so clearly see the presence of God. Maybe the way we're reading this thing is wrong. Wow. How would that change the way that we, we do church? How would that change the way that that we interact not just with, with LGBTQ people but everyone?
0: Mm-hmm. So when we look at um, more his, uh, historical examples. I I started about, started us off on this kind of abstract level about proof texting and everything else. But when you bring it back to issues of people's lives and people that uh, that are LGBT, you have a very significant history of peop- of conversion camps and different things where people are trying to instead of doing what you mentioned, that Acts fifteen does of looking at people's lives and looking at them for who they are and for what they are doing in the present day. They look at the text that we mentioned before and say, this is not appropriate behavior and then try to alter that. That is a major, I mean, that's a, that's a major, to use a very evangelical term, it's a major stumbling block. For some people to even be able to approach Christianity because of the fact that some people that call themselves Christians and are Christians, but believe very differently. What is the, the better alternative to, to that? And I'm asking that as a much more practical, even, I mean, you're a minister, so this is in, in front of you. This is in front of you day to day. You have to take the abstract things of theology and make them practical for people. How would you make this practical? or how do you make it practical
1: yeah we we have to we have to go to um to the idea of 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 what love is um but we also at the same time and I, i'm going to steal this from from uh, a theologian um i've i've been reading but we also have to be willing to say that love's love's not all you need um you know i, I there's there's this phrase or the book that I think Rob Bell wrote like love wins. Um, and okay. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but love is not all you need. Like with, with, with Christianity throughout the course of Christianity, like love, love has always needed a formational framework, a community uh, of character and of faithfulness and of just deep discernment, um, to, to know, to know what love is, because love is such an abstract term. But yet, I think, I think that in our human condition, there are instances of of, of love happening. And when you hear these stories, right, even if you vehemently disagree with the characters involved, you have to kind of say, huh, right, I could, I, there, there, there are, count- I mean, throughout my ministry, right, every, every church I've served in, there have been gay people, and I'll tell you what. In each instance, the churches would not have been as faithful without those individuals playing key roles. There was, uh, I'll just tell. Gosh, I have so many stories, but I'll just I'll just tell two quick ones. Um, in, in in one instance, a very large church in in a, in a major southern city, a very wealthy church. It was a gay, a gay man who came in, and uh, he had been formerly homeless. And he, he, he was blustery, he was, he was sometimes cantankerous, but man, did he love Jesus, and did he have a passion for helping people who were on the streets, because that was his former situation. And through building relationships, through standing up and, and speaking about it, he changed that church's view on homelessness. He, he helped take this church of, of 5,000 members, you know, multi-million dollar budget. Uh, one of the richest churches in that city. And he helped turn their focus onto the homeless. And and what's crazy to me is that um, he, it, it, it's it's a tragic story in some regards because he, he enrolled in seminary. He finally responded to this call to ministry. And within, I think it was the first couple of weeks, he found out he had lung cancer. Uh, it's going to be terminal. And Before he passed away, this this congregation that had been so deeply moved by the way that this man had changed their view about the homeless, raised $30,000 to help build a new homeless shelter uh, of supportive housing uh, in their city, like when is the last time you've heard a church giving $30,000 in honor of anyone. And yet they do it for this this man who happened to be gay, who had changed and challenged and caroused their view of what it meant to be the presence of Christ. And the, and the second story I, I, I have is in another congregation I worked at, uh, there, there, there's a couple, two, um, two women who... Are the example of what it means to serve a church. They work with the youth, they work with the kids. Um, they're they're married, uh, women and women married to each other, and they took it upon themselves to help out, um, take in um, a foster child, and not just any foster child, an older foster child, and. Unfortunately, the way our foster care system works, the older you get, the harder it is to find a placement. And when you do find a placement, most of the time, it's someone who's just doing it for the money and really doesn't give a crap about your life. Like, that's just the reality of the foster care system as it stands in America. And I've, I've watched over the past, you know, year and a half. They took her in. They got her through high school. They got her graduated. They held a a, a donation drive to get her stocked up to go off to college. They rented a car to take her to the school. They helped her set up her room. And they said, you can leave some of your boxes at our house. And, And for people who grew up in foster care, having stuff matters, right? Having stuff matters because you're moving around all the time. That's all you have. You don't have a family. You have a box of stuff. And they said, you know, you can keep some at our house. And on breaks, you can come back anytime that you want. Now, I know, I know that there are some evangelicals out there who do that. I know there are. But I also know that there are gay people who do that. And they do it in a way that I look at this and I, I, I see the way that they change people's minds about homelessness and the way that they impact the lives of kids that no one else wants to have anything to do with. And I say to myself, if that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I don't know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And quite frankly, I don't think you know what it is. If you can look at that and you still think those people are wrong and they're going to hell.
0: Yeah. And in light of stories like that, you're really denying yourself knowing
1: wonderful people. Absolutely, the best people, the best people.
0: Why do you think that evangelicals care so much about sexuality? Why is it, like, such a huge thing? Uh, and, I mean, that's just a very open question. Why do you think <laughs> evangelicals care so much about how we have sex? Why is purity culture such a major thing in so many evangelical circles? It's there. And present in hetero relationships and definitely trying to dictate how homosexual or any LGBTQ expression of sexuality is. So what do you think is at the root of that?
1: I, I think there are a lot of plausible theories. Um I, I'm I'm gonna be honest with you and say I, I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know. Um and that may be the most honest answer. Um If I were going to try to give a a scholarly response, which might not be correct, I would say that much of evangelicalism as it stands now, as the modern constructions of it, um, it's largely based on a very specific gender hierarchy. I would have to say that evangelicalism, as it presents itself in our modern times and historically, has been a very gendered hierarchy it's been dependent on a gendered hierarchy a very specific gendered hierarchy that's what the whole focus on the family or fetish on the family uh was about <laughs> um you know when they found out that they couldn't just outright oppress women they're like okay complementarianism can be a thing right <laughs> but but no, no we're not going to go to equality and don't you dare say the f word feminism or you know we're really going to lose it right um, to evangelicals, feminism is the F-bomb. Like, that's the word you drop when you really want to get people riled up. <laughs> and <laughs> I, when you look at the construction of evangelicalism, like the historic trajectory of it, uh, you can trace it back to, to rumblings in, in England about uh, the construction of masculinity over there with people like Charles Kingsley and his writings called Water Babies. Uh, just throw that out there, go go read it. Um and what LGBTQ people do to that is they, they upset the fruit basket. And all of a sudden you have women who are not dependent on men for, for, for fulfillment, for a family structure, right? If, if you need a man to be head of the household, what do you do when it's two women? Or if you need a woman— to be subservient or to at least take a back seat, what do you do when it's two men? And I think that's really frightening, right? Because they're trying—evangelicals, I think, are trying to hold together this very traditional view of family. And yet it's it's people in, uh, in, in Jim Dobson's generation that are the—you know— um, that's ushered in this 50% divorce rate that we have. Um, and so, I mean, families that go to church are just in danger and in jeopardy of falling apart as families who don't go to church. Um, and that's a scary, scary thing. So LGBTQ people present a perceived threat to that. Although, you know, in many ways, I think it's the same thing with uh, with the way that the Jews perceived what was happening when Gentiles started coming to the church. Uh, God tells Peter, don't call anything that I've created unclean. And sure enough, um, it's a good thing Peter didn't think that they were unclean, because if you keep reading in the book of Acts, uh, when Jerusalem has a famine and those Jews don't have anything to eat, it's the Gentiles from all these Gentile churches that Paul started that start sending back money to help alleviate the famine. Uh, Crazy, huh? So what if it's actually the case that in an age when our churches are, are not growing and um, they're declining, that if it's somehow um, LGBTQ people have a contribution to give that helps bring life and vitality um, to a church that, that has frankly seen better days. I don't know if that's true, but but it could be. And what if it is true? What if it is true?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so where would you have people, where would you have people start? Um, and people are just really, and they're, they're working through their own ideas about this. I'm not, I'm not going to assume that everyone that listens to this has the same opinion about LGBTQ acceptance or, um, LG, the LBG, LGBTQ community. Um, I'm not going to assume that. Where, if someone is very curious about, about these ideas, where would you have them start? Um, and would you have them and it doesn't have to be a book. It does not have to be a book. It could be a recommendation of a more experiential recommendation.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, this sounds, this, this is tricky, right? There are books out there, right? If, if, actually there's a really good book. Um, it's, it's a good primer. If you're, if you're for evangelicals, um, because it deals with some of the scripture stuff, uh, in, in a really accessible way, I'll just throw it out there. Um, God and the gay Christian by Matthew vines. Um, but, but I'm not, I don't think that a book ever convinces, I don't think that that's how people's minds change. Like that's not <laughs> very rarely is I read a book. Um, the reason for a logic model taking coming into existence or a theory of change being, being substantiated, uh, Oh, it's always relationships, right? So, so people who are of the persuasion that LGBTQ people are, this affront, like they, how many gay people do they know? How many, and not, and not like, well, there's a gay guy at my work and he comes in and he's dressed a little funny. And no, that does not count. <laughs> <laughs> how many gay people do you go out to dinner with regularly? And do you know their story? How many transgender people do you no one has close relationships with transgender people who are running transgender people? And as I've gotten to know them, you know, some of them have conversion stories that border on Saul on the road to Damascus. Literally, voices coming out of the sky saying, get to church. Like what? (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) And yet here they are coming to church, getting baptized, joining our membership. So and it's tricky though because you can't you can't tokenize uh LGBTQ people. You can't be like, well, I have a gay friend. You can't say I'm not homophobic, I have I have a gay friend. No. Uh, and one of the best ways to avoid tokenism is this, and to do this the right way, is to seek out friendships that you allow the freedom to change who you are. So so token tokenism is just saying, well, uh, I just need to have like a Latina friend and like a, uh, an African American friend, and you know, then I have diversity. No, that doesn't work. What it does work to say is like I I would like friends who are not like me, and I'm willing to have my life and my views and my politics and my faith changed as a result. So that's a great place to start building relationships uh, with. LGBTQ people. Um that's difficult because man, that's gonna take you out of your comfort zone. And some people are like, well, I don't know any gay people. No, you every everyone knows a gay person. Like every single person. What but you might not know it, but but you you know you know gay people, you know lesbians. You might you you've probably used the restroom of transgender people and not even known it. Um and the reality is is that we tend to n- avoid people who are different than us. Um, especially when we think that we're, that they're going to hell. Right. So there's, there's kind of this, this necessitation of saying, Lord, uh, if, you know, evangelicals pray. Um, I'm glad they pray. I pray. So I, I think it would be saying, praying and saying, God, I I, I don't, I don't know this, but I'm going to try to be open-minded about it. And um, I, I, I'm going to approach this with some humility and then allowing your, your view to be changed. If you're so scared that doing this, opening yourself to this is going to make you lose your salvation. It's probably not going to work. Um, but hopefully you have enough confidence in God's love for you as an individual, such that opening your heart up to other people, um, is not going to send you to hell. Um, I would hope that would be the case. Uh, I would certainly hope that at least.
0: That's that's all very helpful. Um, I'm definitely I'm definitely dialing in on the more practical side. I feel like I am on the more practical side of you being a act, acting minister. So, <laughs> I hope you don't mind me asking you some more practical questions since you do. Yeah. Do, if that's all, I mean, I I I hope I've given you uh, the opportunity to work in some theology and other stuff too. Sure. Um, but my next question is. What would you say is the proper vocabulary? I do think that that is an actual an actual issue and um if you're gonna be cynical about it uh like Patton Oswald has this whole stand up thing about like can you just stop with changing the vocabulary can you yeah. t- talking to like the gay community like can you just stop changing things up on me i'm very i'm I'm very a tolerant person, but I can't keep up with this. Um, yeah. And, uh, that's a very comedic way to look at it, but what is the right way to talk about these things? Cause there are some things that are, um, definitely acceptable. And then there are some things that some people might not know are actually offensive. Um, so given, given that you're an acting minister, I'm sure that you do have to be careful about what you say. So how, how would you recommend other people talk?
1: You ask, ask the person ask, right. Don't assume. And, and don't roll your eyes when they tell you how they want to be uh, recognized. Um, so let me give you, can I give you an example? Real life example.
0: Absolutely. Yes,
1: please. So, um, I identify as, as gay and, uh, I, I, I'm fine being called gay. That's, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, some people will say, hey, you know, do you identify as queer? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, why not? You know, but I do know some, some gay people who do not like to be called queer. Um, but it just, it, it, it depends on the person, right? They, they, they get to choose how they want to be known as. Some, some people, some African Americans don't like being called black. They'll say black is a color. Black is not a person. That's completely fair. We need to respect that. Um, does that make the way we use language and relate to people more complicated? Of course it does. Uh, but I'm willing to put in a little bit of work if it means that I'm not going to trample on someone's identity and sense of self. I think that's, that's a very, very small price to pay for putting a few extra words in my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's
0: a very, yeah, I, I think if you have the relationship with someone, then you, then you know you know that. I've seen some people in some neighborhoods, uh, or, I'm sorry, in some stores, uh, who actually put their pronouns on name tags. Like, their, their preferred pronoun. And that's, that's a huge help. I mean, that's, they're making it very clear to you as another person. Please address me as this. And it becomes a sign of disrespect if you choose not to.
1: Oh, you're a jerk if you don't, right? You're, you're actually kind of a terrible person.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because they're putting it right there. I mean, even if it doesn't, even if it's not something that computes for you, that's not your business. That's not your identity. It's not your preference. So they're making theirs very clear to you. So respect
1: it. You know, if you can't affirm a person's humanity, uh, there's just not a lot of hope for you as a human, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what it comes
0: down to <laughs> yeah yeah um any any other more general things as far as people kind of approaching this topic if they're uh i don't know a just a uh overall noob about this sort of topic
1: um you know what i would say is uh, i i'm gonna i'm gonna flip it so uh I think there's a responsibility, and some people are going to disagree with me on this, but there's a responsibility by some people, and and uh, who are either allies or themselves who identify as LGBTQ, um, which, by the way, I, I should not be using acronyms without uh, explaining it: lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgender, um, queer. Right, and there are additional letters that you can add on there, um, but. To, to your earlier point about uh, Patton, uh, Patton uh, Oswald's, uh standard routine, but there are, um, yeah, you, you could definitely do that. But I think there are some people who are part of the community who, um, who, when they're approached by well-intentioned people trying to learn more, who are going to put their foot in their mouth, because that's just the way things work to be able to say, okay, I get what you're trying to do. Like we can have a conversation. Like it, you know, you're not going to be instant friends. You're, they're not going to be the people that you call up when you need help moving right away. I don't know, though. If they have a truck, maybe they will be. But you at least need the i think some of us need to be able to open our lives up to individuals and say, you know, we're they're trying. They're trying. Um, that's important, I think, in the work of reconciliation, at least.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean— I'm sure some people don't want to feel like they're a project or a science experiment for someone else, but if they are well-intentioned, then that's not, that's not behind that, this hypothetical person's motives. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for, thanks so much for, for sharing your perspective with me. I know we, uh, there is so much to cover here. I want to cover it with other people and in other and, and, other episodes, but I'm very thankful for you coming on and sharing this with me. Um, is there anywhere that people can find you online?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm on, I have a very, uh, poorly updated Twitter account, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at, uh, Kevin K, my middle initial the letter K right. W R I G H T. Um, I have a blog, uh, Kevin Dot com. And uh, once in a while, I I publish um, uh, articles and blogs on Huffington Post. So um, that's all up there.
0: Great. And I, I have read all of the posts that are up on Huffington Post, and I can highly recommend them. They're very good. If you're on the island of Manhattan, where can people find you?
1: I am the Minister of Education at the Riverside Church. We would love to have anyone, absolutely anyone, come and visit. We're a congregation that welcomes all people and... When we say all, we mean all, because uh, I think that's, that's how God means it too. Great. Thanks
0: very much for joining me, Kevin.
1: Thank you, Blake. It's been a real pleasure.